In this interview is a plenitude of acronyms and names. For example, OSAP and Axelrod are mentioned profusely. Because many people are new to this topic, there's a link in the description outlining what each of the acronyms and names refer to specifically. Use this as a compendium or an index to not get overwhelmed, as this topic can indeed be overwhelming even for the acquainted. Today's guests are George Knapp and Colm Kelleher on the topic of UFOs, the hitchhiker effect, and their recent book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, linked in the description. In fact, anytime a book, an article, a video is referenced in the Toe podcast, I've most likely placed a link to it in the description. George Knapp is an investigative journalist, a news anchor, a talk radio host, who has so many awards that I have to read them verbatim, and this still isn't an exhaustive list. He's been recognized with the Edward R. Murrow Awards, Peabody Awards, and dozens of Pacific Southwest Regional Emmy Awards. Colm Kelleher is a biochemist with more than 15 years of research in cell and molecular biology. For the past eight years, Colm has been using forensic science methodologies to investigate scientific anomalies associated with the phenomenon. Click on the timestamp in the description if you'd like to skip this intro. My name is Kirchai Mungle. I'm a Torontonian filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics dedicated to the explication of the variegated terrain of theories of everything. From a theoretical physics perspective, but as well as analyzing consciousness and seeing its potential connection to fundamental reality, whatever that is. Essentially, this channel is dedicated to exploring the underived nature of reality, the constitutional laws that govern it, provided those laws exist at all and are even knowable to us. If you enjoy witnessing and engaging with others on the topics of psychology, consciousness, physics, etc., the channel's themes, then do consider going to the Discord and the subreddit, which are linked in the description. There's also a link to the Patreon, that is patreon.com slash if you'd like to support this podcast, as the patrons and the sponsors are the only reasons that I'm able to have podcasts of this quality and this depth, given that I can do this now full-time, thanks to both the patrons and the sponsors' support. Speaking of sponsors, there are two. The first sponsor is Brilliant. During the winter break, I decided to brush up on some of the fundamentals of physics, particularly with regard to information theory, as I'd like to interview Chiara Marletto on constructor theory, which is heavily based in information theory. Now, information theory is predicated on entropy. At least there's a fundamental formula for entropy. So I ended up taking the brilliant course. I challenged myself to do one lesson per day, and I took the courses random variable distributions and knowledge slash uncertainty. What I loved is that despite knowing the formula for entropy, which is essentially hammered into you as an undergraduate, it seems like it comes down from the sky arbitrarily. And with Brilliant, for the first time, I was able to see how the formula for entropy, which you're seeing right now, is actually extremely natural, and it'd be strange to define it in any other manner. There are plenty of courses, and you can even learn group theory, which is what's being referenced when you hear that the standard model is predicated on U1 cross SU2 cross SU3. Those are Lie groups, continuous Lie groups. Visit brilliant.org slash toe to get 20% off an annual subscription, and I recommend that you don't stop before four lessons. I think you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can now comprehend subjects you previously had a difficult time grokking. The second sponsor is Algo. Now, Algo is an end-to-end -end supply chain optimization software company with software that helps business users optimize sales and operations, planning to avoid stockouts, reduce return and inventory write-downs while reducing inventory investment. It's a supply chain AI that drives smart ROI, headed by Amjad Hussein, who's been a huge supporter of this podcast since near its inception. In fact, Amjad has his own podcast on AI and consciousness and business growth. And if you'd like to support the Toe podcast... 
then visit the link in the description to see Amjad's podcast because subscribing to him, or at least visiting, supports the Toe podcast indirectly. Thank you and enjoy. I'm also not feeling terribly well, so if I am not at my tip-top shape, please forgive me. Okay, it seems like we're live. Great, great, great. Okay, welcome, Colm. Welcome, George. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Man, okay, this is such a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this, and many, many, many people have been looking forward to this. So we'll get straight to the questions. Forget about intros. I'll edit in an intro later. George, this one's directed to you. Why don't you explain to the people who are unacquainted what the hitchhiker effect is? We don't exactly know. And I, I think a hitchhiker effect should probably be plural, not just a, a singular form of the term, because there are many effects. We, uh, the Bass team first noticed it in uh, correlation to things that happened to people who visited Skinwalker Ranch. In particular, there were at least five, maybe six intelligence officials who during the OSAP program, uh, overseen and funded by the Defense Intelligence Agency, these intelligence officials visited Skinwalker Ranch, had an encounter with something unusual, and then took something home with them. We don't know exactly how it works. We don't know why it happens but it's happened over and over again. It not only happened to those people during the OSAP bass period, but it happened to people who had visited the ranch uh, during the NIDS era and, and even before that, where people would go to this property, encounter unusual phenomena, UFOs, whatever, and then they would go home and they were visited at their home by orbs, by craft, by crypto type beings, poltergeist type activity broke out in their homes. In one particular uh, instance that we describe in the book, there were these very seasoned intelligence officials who as part of the Bass OSAP program went to the ranch to check it out for themselves. They're walking during the, in the middle homestead uh, at night, it's cold and suddenly gets much colder. They hit a, a cold spot where it goes, the temperature drops dramatically in a matter of seconds and they were sort of on high alert. In fact, these guys were on high alert the whole time they were on the ranch because they'd read and heard about it. And uh, they encountered some sort of a, an intelligence that had a, a sort of a menacing presence. It sort of froze them in their tracks. They backed off. And later when they went home, they had an eruption of paranormal activity in their homes. It is and generally the way it works is it spreads to their family members. Uh, the family members, wives, children see these things ahead of time. The one uh, character in our book, Axelrod, not his real name. We had to change that at the direction of the Pentagon when we submitted the manuscript. He had this explosion of activity in his home that was seen by his wife. She saw this uh, uh, standing on two legs, a wolf creature, a, a wolf standing in her yard, its paws crossed like this, leaning on a tree, staring back at her. Uh, a couple of days later, she didn't tell anybody about it. A couple of days later, her, her kids see it. They scream. This thing runs off down the street. They can see it's, it's running on two legs. It's kicking up leaves. Uh, and they didn't know what the hell to think about it. But there were other things that happened in the home, beings, uh, shadowy figures seen in the home, things moving around on their own. Their pet had been moved. They found their dog up on the roof one day, all kinds of trickster type activity. And then it spread from the kids to their friends in the neighborhood. Uh, that has happened a bunch of times. It happened, there was a female agent who we did detail in the book, a very seasoned, battle-hardened professional who encountered something with Colum, and he can tell you about it. They encountered some kind of a creature, a crypto creature that people have dubbed the dino beaver, again, in the middle homestead. This woman, when she goes back home, it's an immediate explosion of what you could call poltergeist type activity. 
Not saying it is poltergeist, it's just similar to that kind of activity that's been reported over the decades by poltergeist researchers uh, in her home. Uh, a wine bottle flies across the room one from one side of the room, smashes on the wall on the other side. There are beings that she sees at, at the side of her bed, things moving around in her home. It was so dramatic that her roommate, who was her fiance, moved out, ended that relationship. This activity has continued for years. Um, Colin will tell you it's happened to pretty much all of us who've spent a lot of time on the ranch, including me. I've never seen anything on Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, but my wife has experienced things at my home. Column's wife has experienced things in their home. Bob Bigelow's wife experienced things in their home. Some of it is benign and interesting, and some of it is downright scary. We don't know why it happens, but Column, with his biology background, can explain better about sort of the effect of how it spreads. It's like a virus. You mentioned it's benign and sometimes deleterious. Is any of it positive? Not that I know of. Uh, maybe Colum has heard about that. I mean, it's positive in the sense of, wow, I got to see something really strange there. It's kind of kind of thrilling. I, the, my wife, the first time something happened at our home, and I, I tried to make this happen for a long time before I knew about the hitchhiker effect. I would bring things home from Skinwalker Ranch to my house, try to engage whatever it was. Bits of rocks and scrap and things taken from the homesteads, little tiny bits and pieces to try to get it going. And finally it happened and it wasn't pleasant. Uh, my wife saw these blue orbs uh, floating over our our, uh, our house at night. She called me to come up and see them. By the time I got there, they were gone. And then there was an experience in our bedroom where this, uh, this thing came in. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that, but it was a very frightening experience for her, unpleasant, and she didn't want it to happen again. Well, um, you know, the interesting thing about the uh, hitchhiker effect is that it is very very reproducible you know george george said that you know back in the even in the 90s the nids people were experiencing this effect but in terms of reproducibility um we know that uh going into between the nids era which ended in really in 2003 and the bass era the osap era which happened really beginning in 2008 2009 Multiple security officers were, were deployed on the uh, on the Skinwalker Ranch property. A lot of those people, we've personally interviewed about a dozen of them, and a lot of those people have brought, quote unquote, brought something home. Same kind of thing, um, poltergeist activity in the house. Sometimes they see orbs in the house. Um, and then getting into the OSAP era where everything seemed to really escalate, and uh, these these uh, five out of five, 100% of the military intelligence people who were deployed at the request of the Defense Intelligence Agency onto Skinwalker Ranch did, as George said, bring something home with them. Um, and, you know, even after Robert Bigelow sold uh, Skinwalker Ranch, we have a new era of uh, Brandon Fugel, the uh, proper, property developer from Utah purchased the ranch. He installed a team on the property. And lo and behold, we have another set of instances of uh, the hitchhiker effect. Um, and remember the people who went on Skinwalker Ranch in 2016 were very, very skeptical. And they were saying, this is all, you know, this is not absolutely, you know, this is all fantasy. And then stuff started erupting in their homes. They brought something home with them in multiple instances. So in terms of reproducibility, the hitchhiker effect has continuously affected people uh, for that we know of for about 25 years. 
Um, it may be longer on Skinwalker Ranch. And the second point I wanted to make was that it is not only Skinwalker Ranch. It is not sort of only happening on Skinwalker Ranch, but a lot of uh, UFO um, activity does seem to give rise to the Skinwalker or the, uh, the hitchhiker effect. Uh, for people who have never been on Skinwalker Ranch and just interact with the, the UFO phenomenon, they uh, themselves, in some cases, I'm not saying in all cases, but in some cases, and mostly where we have the luxury of being able to study these people over many months or many years, um, a lot of these people, um, you know, uh, report elements of the hitchhiker effect. You know, it's kind of ironic, but going all the way back to 1947, Kenneth Arnold, uh, when he saw those nine objects in the sky over the Cascade Mountains uh, on June, in June of 1947. It's interesting, long after he died, um, his daughter went on a radio show. She was uh, talking about writing a book about his life, but she started talking about seeing orbs in the, in the Arnold home, uh, saw, saw, uh, experienced various poltergeist effects. Uh, even Kenneth Arnold himself in his book um, talks about... Uh, you know, some really weird happenings that were happening um, after the uh, June 24, 1947. I'm not unambiguously tying what happened to Kenneth Arnold to some form of the hitchhiker effect, but I'm saying that this effect is not just a Skinwalker Ranch specific effect. It happens on a much broader scale. You've been researching in this area for decades, or at least plenty and plenty of years. What piece of evidence do you find most striking, most remarkable, for whatever reason. So one could be because it's incontrovertible evidence toward the, the existence of X or Y, or it led to some new research area. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. 
Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Um, I think one of the most remarkable things that uh, we found during the OSAP program, and, and again, uh, the OSAP program uh, was a, a 24-month program that started in uh, 2008 and ended in 2010. But, you know, for the first time, we had a large team. We had about 50 people who were employed full-time at OSAP. And then uh, we had $22 million allocated through the Defense Intelligence Agency for a two-year period. So it's very rare in the UFO uh, field to have the luxury of resources and being able to study people over long periods of time after you know, they've encountered UFOs. So I guess one of the most remarkable sort of um, discoveries that we made uh, during the OSAP program was the intense medical effects that, that, uh, that some of these uh, UFO um, uh, cases cause in, in, in some people. I'll give you an example. Um, one, of the, one of the Sentinel cases that we actually investigated over a, about a year actually, and, and, it, and it went into a, almost a two-year investigation, was that this biotechnologist and his daughter were driving towards Bend, Oregon in their, in their vehicle on their way home. And um, the daughter notices three small UFOs, uh, bluish color that were darting around in the field beside them. Um, once she noticed them, they immediately made a beeline for the vehicle as they were driving. And uh, one of them went right across the windshield. One of them went, uh, came into the car and, and went right across uh, both the, in their field of view, went right across the, uh, the windshield uh, inside the vehicle. But the third one actually went through the left shoulder of this biotechnologist, went through the upper uh, thoracic cavity and then emerged from the right shoulder and then shot out through the, uh, the window right in front of the daughter. I mean, this was a terrifying episode for the for the daughter, especially as uh, she was witnessing all of this. But, you know, within, um, I would say, 24 to 48 hours, uh, this guy woke up the following day with the left the, the left side of his face was all sunburnt. Um, his his ear had started swelling his eye. He was started lo losing the sight in his left eye. Um, 
within a week or, or a couple of weeks, he started losing his hair uh, on the left side of his head. And, you know, luckily we had on contract uh, MD, PhD, a uh, couple of MD, PhDs, um, really sort of as, as people who could get deep into medical investigations and look at medical injuries. So we deployed one of these people, uh, you know, on this case. And he followed, uh, he followed this guy over many, many months. But um, it turned out that um, a few months after this, uh, this event had happened, um, he came down with a rare form of ductal carcinoma um, that luckily was not metastatic. So it, uh, it, it did not metastasize. Um, and over a two-year period, went through a lot of, lot of health issues. But in terms of being able to document all of that, we were very, very fortunate that we had access to blood samples taken from this guy before the incident. And then there were multiple blood samples taken uh, after the incident. So we were able to uh, piece together a medical forensic sort of picture of what had happened um, before and, uh, and after this incident. And we could document, you know, rises and falls of various immune, immune system parameters within this guy. Uh, we, we, we saw that there were dramatic changes in neutrophil lymphocyte ratios over time. And, you know, this was for, from a, a, an OSAP a UFO investigation point of view, we think this was one of the sentinel cases because it, it, we, we had resources and we were able to, we had the luxury of, of following this guy over a year and a half to two years uh, after the incident. And as I said, we had blood samples taken before the incident. So we were actually able to postulate about cause and effect and the sort of the dramatic increase in adverse health symptoms that this guy had, had uh, suffered. Um, we were able to say with reasonable confidence that he suffered pretty well all of those after the uh, close encounter with this uh, small blue orb. Um, so that, that's, that was a case and we had uh, several other cases that uh, Bass Ossop encountered that sort of, um, you know, looked at the medical injury aspect. And that was one of the, the things that really surprised me. During the, the NIDS era, we did not encounter too many of those cases. Um, you know, we were all the time databasing cases from, um, you know, we had about 1,800 separate UFO investigations under our belt by the time the NIDS database uh, went on ice, which was about 2003. Um, but we never saw, in, in terms of boots in the ground investigations of UFO effects, we never saw the sort of level of medical injury uh, that we saw sort of, you know, up close and personal with a few of these cases. So I guess that's one of the things that really surprised me from the OSAP uh, series of investigations. Did that person feel any burning sensation or any sensation at all when the orb went through him? Well, he, he actually did feel a sort of really weird, sort of uncomfortable. Um, it wasn't painful or or anything. He, he, he felt sort of... Um, discombobulated and sort of out of sorts as this thing was traveling through his body it was almost like um, a large, it, it felt like a very, very large bubble that was moving through his body. He actually did feel mm. the movement, but he didn't feel any pain or he didn't feel any discomfort. He just felt, uh, I, I would say it was sort of a version of mild vertigo. 
Okay, George, when we first connected, you mentioned to me that there's plenty of meat on the bones, so to speak, in the book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, which the link is in the description for those who would like to check that out. Now, what are you referring to? What specifically are you referring to that you feel like people in the media, either on podcasts, etc., haven't picked up on? And why do you think it's so important, those pieces of information? This question also comes from Dan from That UFO Podcast. Yeah, there, well, there, there are a lot of ways I could answer that. I'll give you sort of some bullet points. One is the uh, documenting the difference between OSAP and ATIP. We're all glad that ATIP, that story, hit the New York Times in December 2017. Uh, but there were multiple errors of fact in that story that they sort of conflated OSAP with ATIP. OSAP is the program that got $22 million. OSAP was authorized and overseen by the Defense Intelligence Agency. It was not a small operation, as Colm said. It had 50 full-time employees uh, working around the clock and then hundreds of subcontractors. It was huge. As far as we know, we believe there are other UFO programs, but as far as we know, it was the largest such endeavor ever funded by the U.S. government, bigger than Project Blue Book, uh, bigger than, uh, than, the a than ATEP by uh, many magnitudes. And um, I don't think people get how just how big it was. ATIP grew out of OSAP not the other way around. There were two distinct efforts, and this was huge. Number two is the database. The database that was created by these guys is enormous. It's more than 200,000 different UFO cases. It incorporates uh, not only Project Blue Book and U.S. government files, but also private files compiled by NIDS, the files of other governments, including Brazil, uh, documents, reports, case files, things of that sort. It was enormous. And I don't think there's anything like it anywhere else in the world. And had OSAP been allowed to continue, one of the plans was, as envisioned by Jacques Vallée, who created this database or data warehouse, was to put AI uh, on top of it as a way to filter and co collate uh, different cases to look for patterns. If that had been allowed to continue, if OSAP had been allowed to continue, we'd be way further down the road in understanding what this phenomena is. As it is, we don't understand it at all. We don't know where it's from, why it's here, what its interest is in us. We don't know what the answers to any of those big questions, but it is possible. It, it, they could have been achieved if it had been allowed to continue. Also, the specific cases. Um, Tic Tac is probably the most famous UFO case in the world. That was an OSAP project. They launched that investigation. And although we've seen bits and pieces of what OSAP was able to determine about the Tic Tac, the bulk of that information, the analysis that was done with a specific kind of software has never been made public. A column could probably address that a lot better than I can, but let me finish this list. And then there are individual cases, things that happened at Skinwalker Ranch, crypto creatures, the different kinds of craft that were investigated, seen and investigated by OSAP at the ranch and then other places around the country. There's a case in Georgia that was investigated that is a mind boggling. There's a a men in black type instance that happened in Kentucky that Column can elaborate on. There's a Southern California in incident in Ventura County where an entire family had these experiences over a number of days, saw alien beings, got them on camera, in fact, and um, it had a kind of a trick ending. But those kind of cases, I don't think they have, have registered with the general public or the UFO public at all. Column, do you want to add to that? Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, exactly what uh, what George put out is is the case. And I guess, you know, we can be sort of blamed in some way because we sort of set out to write a fairly uh, a fairly dense book in, uh, in in Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. 
And we decided from the get-go that we we could have added a hundred pages of filler if we had so chosen, but we decided against that. And and so I think the book is is pretty dense. Um, there's not a lot of fluff in there in terms of sort of um, you know going going beyond what what the facts were. So um, I think I think a lot of people because of that, and I don't blame them personally, but. Uh, a lot of people have missed some of the things that are uh, that are in the book, and and uh, I think it does probably demand uh, more than one reading. Uh, and you know, a lot of people I've noticed on social media and and etc. have focused and sort of said that the OSAP program was only focused on Skinwalker Ranch and it was only focused on exploring ghosts and what have we. But the fact is, you know, we submitted 104 separate reports to the Defense Intelligence Agency as separate deliverables uh, during the OSAP program. And only a, a minority of those, uh, those reports were focused on Skinwalker Ranch. The remainder of the reports focused on, you know, we, 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 we did a, um, a pretty extensive um, engineering analysis of the Tic Tac incident and we compiled a report based on uh, ANSYS uh, multi-physics analysis of the, of the Tic Tac case, um, computational fluid dynamics analysis. Um, that was a 140 plus page report that was submitted to the Defense Intelligence Agency that was completely separate from the report that Axelrod submitted on his investigation and his investigation of the Tic Tac uh, effect. So uh, we also had a lot of um, investigations of um, things like uh, the Russian uh, UFO papers that George Knapp brought back from, uh, from Russia, that had, was completely independent of Skinwalker Ranch. And uh, we, we employed three separate Russian translators. We got a lot of the, uh, the, the documentation, we got all of the documentation translated. We had analysts take a look at it. And we, I mean, we were, it was a mind boggling array of an organizational chart in uh, Russia slash Soviet Union in the early 1990s, which showed that the, the, the Soviet Union had this massive uh, program that was focused on gathering UFO uh, data nationwide at a national level. Uh, government departments were, were involved as well as university departments uh, involved. There was also this military unit called 73790 that was involved. And it, it seemed to be the sort of the linchpin of the entire investigation. And, you know, there've been whispers about unit 73790 as being sort of fundamental to the Soviet Union and later the Russian focus on the UAP uh, uh, agenda. But, you know, Senator Reid, when he, when he uh, was instrumental in forming this program, one of the really sort of alarming things in his mind was the prospect that another country would be gaining traction on the United States. And, you know, he had in mind Russia and China, um, but other countries also, that they were gaining a technological edge because they were actually taking the UFO topic a lot more seriously um, in, in these countries than they were in the United States. Uh, you know, we have publicly, we know we had Project Sign, we had Project Grudge, we had Project Blue Book, 
And then sort of laterally, we had this very large OSAP program, which unfortunately was prematurely truncated after two years, just as it was really sort of getting going. And then we had this very small effort in the Pentagon called ATIP, you know, uh, so, so in terms of the publicly available knowledge of how seriously the United States government was taking the UFO phenomenon, um, the, the thread three documents that OSAP translated and analyzed shows pretty unequivocally that the Soviet Union slash Russia had a much more serious and, and wider scope program. Okay, let's talk about the hitchhiker effect for a little while. This question comes from Arthur, Arthur Switalski, and if I'm mispronouncing that well, forgive me. I believe this comes from Twitter. And this, so I'm going to paraphrase this. It seems like the hitchhiker effect is akin to an, a contagion. And the way that I understand it is that it must be that it decreases with severity the more that it's spread from person to person. Otherwise, we'd all have it because we're connected. So firstly, does it decrease? Have you found any evidence that it decreases when it spreads from person to person? Well, I would say sort of the poster child for the uh, the hitchhiker effect in terms of our ability to study it over over time. And I think your, your listener, that's a very good question, actually, because um, it does have a lot of implications. Um, but the poster poster child for this was, was the Axelrod family. So Axelrod was the sort of the primary primary infectee on, on the on Skinwalker Ranch. He flew 2,000 miles back to his home in, uh, in Virginia. Um, within a few weeks, um, both his sons and his wife had experienced these dramatic effects that George has alluded to. Um, at the same time, um, neighbors started uh, reporting, um, this was like a few months later, neighbors started reporting eruptions of uh, unusual effects as uh, school kids that the Axelrods uh, knew, uh, the Axelrod kids knew uh, also started reporting weird creatures outside their bedrooms. And remember Axelrod, the Axelrod family, uh, the, you know, the guy in the Axelrod family had top secret security clearances, um, you know, was a very high level Navy um, pers person. So, um, the family were well used to keeping secrets. They were not sort of con sort of the, the kind of kids that went to school and blabbed about what their, you know, their family was doing. So they kept very quiet about this whole thing. So bottom line is that there was a spread out, out into the neighbors and out, out, out into the school kids. The, the real question is how far this actually spread. And, and we do not have a full grasp on exactly how far it spread. But um, I think the questioner is, is really correct because um, we probably would have picked up additional cases um, if, the, uh, if this had spread you know, into large areas around the, neighbor, the neighborhood uh, as, as, you know, as, as opposed to what, what we actually did pick up. In other cases, we know that it's spread through uh, through kids, and in some cases, coworkers um, all, also uh, were subject to this. But we do not have. I would say the N is too small. Um, and again, this comes back to the fact that the OSAP program was prematurely truncated. And you know, 
the original plan was to have a five-year program. We believe if OSAP had been allowed to continue for the full five years with, you know, 50 plus full-time employees, we would have made a lot of inroads into answering the kind of questions about how far the hitchhiker effect uh, extends. Um, you know, because I, my one of my backgrounds is in vi virology, um, and sort of it's it's pretty obvious from the coronavirus update. update everybody is familiar with the R zero uh, concept and the ability of a virus to uh, to infect new hosts. So um, I the, the the epidemiological analysis of the hitchhiker effect is crying out to be done. Um, if there was a follow-up program uh, for the uh, of, for OSAP that could document additional cases of the hitchhiker effect, right now we have probably between two and three dozen cases um, of of the hitchhiker effect um, over the last twenty to twenty-five years. But you know we need an awful lot more than that and start in in terms of um, documenting uh, the extent of this effect. But you know. The tools of epidemiological analysis um, and modeling are, are sort of, they're widespread. Every other lab uh, that studies coronavirus has, you know, epidemiological modeling, um, you know, resources at their disposal. So this would be a very easy project to uh, extend. All we need is additional cases. George, do you have any comments on that? No, I just, I agree that it was a great question. I haven't really considered it. I know that for us, my wife and I, we don't think it to spread any further than that. Of course, we, we, we have had no reports from people that we know. We don't have children and we act, we, last couple of years, we've lived like hermits. So I guess that could explain part of it, but that's a great question is how far it can spread. We don't know the answer to it. See, what I'm wondering is what are some of the other factors? So it seems proximity, spatial proximity is a factor, maybe temporal in, oh, sorry, maybe temporal length. So how long am I spending with someone? What are some of the other factors? Well, you know, what, one of the, um, one of the sort of questions that I've heard asked is, you know, this could be just a series of fantasies that happen in these people's minds, etc. But you know, there are indications that, for example, in the Axelrod family, that this creature that, uh, that the wife saw independently from the two kids in their home um, left physical tracks. So, for example, you know, uh, there were claw marks on the tree uh, when the Axelrod family went out to, to investigate after the second incident with the kids. Uh, they found all these really obvious claw marks on the tree right on the exact tree that this, the wife had seen this creature uh, uh, leaning against. That's number one. They also saw this creature throwing up a lot of leaves in the, in the backyard as it was running. Um, one of the Axelrod kids got besieged by orbs one night um, in 2011 and uh, woke up with physical marks on his body or a lot of red wet welts on his body uh, it looked like, you know, frankly, it looked like he had been beaten up um, um, after a night um, in which there was a lot of this, quote unquote, par paranormal activity in his house and in his bedroom. But he had physical marks on his body um, and they, they actually brought him to the ER 
just to, to check him out and, and make sure that he was at home from school the following day. Um, he had like intense influenza-like symptoms after that too. But, um, you know, so this is not only a, um, you know, a sort of a, a mind phenomenon, it does have physical effects on the environment. So, you know, it could be both, but, um, you know, I wanted to emphasize that there are physical effects um, in the environment as well. And just to add to just a reminder, the health consequences for people who come into contact with these phenomena, not just at the ranch. I mean, you can look at the highly publicized cases uh, where Navy pilots have encountered UFOs uh, without being too specific or giving away personal information. You can bet that there's a chance that some of those have had these experiences as well. And when they go home, it's not just poltergeist type activity. There are severe health consequences. There are diseases. Perhaps the your audience, Kurt, will remember recent comments by Dr. Gary Nolan, where he admits he was contacted by CIA to look into some of these long-term health consequences for people who encounter UFOs. Nothing to do with Skinwalker Ranch, but people who get too close for too long to UFOs have severe medical and health consequences that last for a long time. We need to understand that. You know, we need to understand how that works. Uh, it's not just uh, weird stuff that they see in their rooms at night. It's uh, diseases and health consequences that put their lives in danger. Kit Green wrote a paper about it for OSAP, for Bass. It's one of the 38 DIRDs, uh, the reports that were uh, fu uh, funded by Bass to establish a sort of a baseline for different aspects of what OSAP was going to study. Uh, they contacted these different professionals, professors, PhDs, to uh, look into specific topics um, that was uh, related to their own level of expertise, hypersonics, for example. Uh, most of the people who wrote those papers didn't know they were writing it as part of a UFO study funded by DIA, uh, but they wrote it anyway, projecting what our state-of-the-art uh, knowledge of in, in a particular specialty is, projecting it out over uh, 40 or 50 years. Uh, one of those papers, one of those 38 dirds written by Dr. Kit Green, neuroscientist, uh, was looking at the medical effects. That work has inspired Dr. Gary Nolan and others to take it a little bit further and look at what are the health consequences of coming into proximity uh, contact with a UFO. I should also let you know that the audience for this is so variegated. It runs the gamut from people who are extremely familiar with the UFO space to people who are more interested in the bread and butter of this channel, theoretical physics, math consciousness. So often there are these acronyms and they may be unfamiliar to many people. So please, right. if you have an acronym, just a one sentence explanation, like what is OSAP, DIA, et cetera, when they come up. I know it's tedious, but there's many questions about that. No, that's great. That's a good idea because we get it does get confusing for people. Uh, DIA is Defense Intelligence Agency. It's the Pentagon's version of the CIA. OSAP is the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program. That was the acronym given to the BAS study. Uh, I'll get to BAS in a second. Uh, by the DIA. BAS is the Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Space Systems. It's an offshoot of Bigelow Aerospace. It was the contractor that got the contract from DIA for OSAP, if you've got all those acronyms straight. And then ATIP, which is the Advanced Aerospace Weapon, no, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, is sort of the successor to OSAP. It grew up out of the, the ruins of OSAP, so to speak. That's the program that was uh, directed by Lou Elizondo. Okay, calm your, calm your, do you look like you're, Chomping at the bit. 
No, no, I, I was uh, actually um, removing something that came up on the screen. All right. Okay, so this question comes from KF. And by the way, if there's someone in the audience who wants to work on a legend or a compendium about these acronyms so that it can be so that someone can easily reference them, then please contact me. Okay, so KF has a question, a very serious question, Kurt. Have they considered testing the hitchhiker syndrome with people who are blind or have been blind from birth? And are there different outcomes to this? That's for common. That's a very It's actually extremely question. mean to test it on someone, but yeah. you understand the spirit of the question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you would have to sort of uh, sign a lot of waivers um, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, you would have a lot of examination from the HIPAA, that's another acronym, but health insurance, portability, uh, whatever it is, act, in other words, medical, medical confidentiality. Um, you would also have to make sure that you had institutional review board, uh, you know, check that box too, before you got into that kind of research. Because this is human, uh, human-based research, which is extremely uh, tightly controlled by the National Institutes of Health. So once you checked all those boxes um, and provided, you know, all of the releases had been signed, that it is theoretically possible to have people uh, who are blind, you know, all the way across the uh, the spectrum. Um, there, there's a there's a whole series of studies um, that were conducted uh, by a, a psychiatrist called Kenneth Ring, um, he, and and he studied actually uh, these anomalous experiences in blind people, and found that the uh, anomalous experiences included um, consciousness related experiences like near death experiences and uh, found that the uh, blind individuals uh, were absolutely equally um, capable of seeing near-death experiences as they were as, as you know, people with, with normal sight. Now, that's, that's quite a leap between what we're discussing and uh, near-death experiences, but I'm saying that there is precedent for that kind of an analysis, uh, but it does go back to the question of how big is the N? And uh, the N is pretty small with the data that we have in hand. Really what we want to see, I think George and I and uh, Jim Likatsky is um, a, another program that is focused in the same way that utilizes the OSAP template to study the UFO problem um, and not just confine it to um, small sort of uh, rifle shot type studies that focus only on military pilots. Um, once you start looking at uh, effects of these uh, UFO encounters on people, then you start getting into things like the hitchhiker effect. And we think that there's enough rumor and innuendo regarding some of the military pilots that have encountered uh, these, these UFOs to warrant studies that are long-term on human effects as well, including psychological effects, but also medical effects um, uh, and especially over long-term. Um, you know, the, the old days of UFO investigations occurring on people's own time during the weekends, you know, which is sort of the classic model of UFO studies, uh, the, the sort of uh, weekend warrior model 
Um, that really does not apply in this case. You've got to have the resources to be able to study. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. These people long-term, and I'm talking months or, or years in some cases, in order to fully delineate these kinds of effects. I mean, if you go out on a weekend and you interview somebody for three or four hours, you record that interview and you go home, uh, the chances are you will pick up only a very small percent of that person's UFO experience. You'll, you'll pick up data on UFO parameters, per performance parameters, uh, how close it was, how, how fast it did right angle turns, uh, what kind of lights it might have had. And you can try to sort of marry that to theoretical physics concepts. But really what you need to do is to do that, but also to look at the long-term effects uh, on humans. Because without you know, both sides of that equation, I think you're looking at a very distorted data set. Okay, speaking of physics, this question comes from Mossy Moose. During the OSAP program and potentially continuing into the present day, what sorts of energy signatures pass through the experiencers of UAPs and the phenomenon in close proximity? And is it related to neutrinos? Does this type of detectable and measurable energy signature play a role in the hitchhiker effect? That's a pretty good question I mean, I, too. Yeah, I, I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to be a scientist. Column, uh, that maybe is a better question for him, and I don't know if they, they ever got were able to get that specific. So, well, the the only um, the only I guess uh, medical effects that we were able to document um, in, involved um, we think some form of potentially non non ionizing radiation. Um, you know, sort of we we um, you know there was another case that. George uh, briefly mentioned, and that was, um, and this pertains to what I'm talking about. Uh, in, in, in Georgia, you know, this guy, um, this guy was alerted by his dog barking outside. And this is a case that we investigated, you know, pretty over a long period of time. But um, he went outside, his, his, his young boy, 
and a couple of neighbors were in a tent in their backyard. They were kind of in a sleepover. He went out to check on them and check on the dog. And right over his property, uh, hovering silently, was this massive black triangle, um, this large black triangle. Now, it was nighttime, so he couldn't get a good fix, but he figured it was very, very low. Um, he said it was massive, the size of a, a football field. Um, so it was right over his, uh, his, his property. So we tried taking cell phone photos um, and, you know, all, all that came out was just blackness because he could see it silhouetted against the sky, but the resolution of his iPhone camera uh, was, was insufficient to pick it up. So he went back inside and, and pulled out, um, he had a very powerful flashlight so we went back outside. This thing was still hovering above him. So he shone the flashlight up at it to see if he could see any, any features on the underside of this, this craft. And almost immediately, this a large, intense blue ray uh, came from the, the front side of the triangle and shot right on him. And he immediately felt you know, a lot of heat and a lot, he was kind of blinded and felt a lot of heat. He turned around and crouched uh, away from this. But at that stage, he felt a lot of heat on his neck and his back. So he got, you know, he ran inside because he, you know, he felt, he felt threatened. But this blue light was probably a foot in diameter. And it, it seemed to be instantaneous reaction to him shining the flashlight at the underside of this object. So. Um, he looked at it from the window and uh, it took off at enormous speeds uh, heading, heading you know, up in the sky and was gone very, very quickly. So he went to bed and sort of um, woke up with a very strong metallic taste in his mouth. Um, he had a, a lot of sunburn on the back of his neck. Um, he had a headache. Uh, he did not feel well and sort of uh, so investigations start, we were contacted as part of the, uh, the, the BAS MUFON. MUFON is the acronym for Mutual UFO. Uh, Network. Yeah, uh, so, so uh, we, were, we were contacted via MUFON about this case. So we sent investigators out, we photographed this guy. Um, he, he started losing his hair on the back of his head. Uh, and we had one of our physician scientists go out and visit him. And he organized uh, a set of uh, medical visits to the local uh, clinic that documented him. Over time, he had a lot of health effects. Um, he had intense nausea over, uh, over this whole case. And um, so, you know, there was indirect evidence, not direct evidence, but from the constellation of medical symptoms, including sort of strong metallic taste in his mouth, losing hair, um, intense sunburn on his skin uh, and, and some other features. Yeah, one of the hypotheses that we came up with for this case and for other cases was uh, non-ionizing uh, radiation. Um, but we were never able to get more specific than that. It was some form of electromagnetic radiation. And we did not, we were not able to pinpoint the intensity or we were not able to pinpoint exact uh, wavelength but we, uh, there was a hypothesis put forward that needs to be validated over time in future cases that non-ionizing radiation, um, you know, was, was used on this guy. 
there was a whole plethora of other strange effects that this guy went through. Um, he had all these bizarre electronic interference uh, phenomena that were erupted in his home. Um, he had, as I said, a lot of medical effects. A lot of these um, tumor tumors started growing in his body. Luckily, they turned out to be benign, and he was diagnosed with Castleman's disease. And uh, eventually, after a couple couple or a few years, he got better and uh, you know pulled out of it. But you know, there were he was besieged by low flying black helicopters. Um, you know, at one stage which is another sort of feature that, that is associated with the UFO phenomenon. But why is it featured associated with the UFO phenomenon? Well, we don't have the answer to that. But, you know, one of the things that the lessons learned from OSAP is that we think the template is robust. The template should be repeated and it should be extended beyond the two-year program. So, you know... The, the bottom line for, for the future, we think for UFO studies, is to do a five plus year study with the kinds of resources that OSAP had and the kinds of um, personnel that were devoted exclusively to investigating the UFO mystery. Because, you know, as everybody knows, as a lot of your listeners know, we've been looking at this, um, you know, in the public eye for 75 years. That's an awful long time to be uh, wondering what is this phenomenon? You know, what, one of the things that the OSAP program was tasked to do was to um, delineate whether or not this phenomenon was a threat to the United States and a threat to national security. Bottom line is, you know, there are two aspects of, of, of threat analysis. One is capability and the other, the other is intent. So part A was capability, and we, our, our data warehouse and da databases were full of instances where we were able to map out the capabilities of the UFO phenomenon. But in terms of intent is a really big question mark. After 75 years of looking at this UFO phenomenon, we still have no idea regarding uh, whether or not what the intent or what the agenda of this phenomenon is. So therefore, our final report to the Defense Intelligence Agency, we did not say that the UFO phenomenon was a threat to national security. We said it was a threat to human health. And that's a very, very different, you know, parsing hmm. of that sort of concept. It's a very, very different thing to say. It's a bad thing for you, for people to be close to UFOs. But it, uh, we were not able to, to gather enough data to determine whether or not this was a threat to national security. I'd like to add, Kurt, if there's one underlying message from our book, one lesson learned uh, from the OSAP program, it's that you need to follow the evidence where it leads. The Defense Intelligence Agency crafted this program as a UFO study. That was its primary focus is on UFOs, the technology. Whose is it? Is it a threat? Can we duplicate it? Can we figure it out and duplicate it? But it also had, and everyone at DIA and within Bass understood that it also was going to follow the evidence wherever it led. Since our book came out and some of the, the details about OSAP and Bass, we've had a lot of criticism. Oh gosh, that was a silly program. It was, they were ghost hunters. They were looking at Bigfoot. 
all these goofy, silly topics, paranormal stuff that's been discredited. Well, that was not entirely true. It was a UFO program to start, but they followed the evidence where it led, and it led into some pretty strange areas. They didn't set out and didn't want to study ghosts or poltergeists, and we don't even know if that's what they were studying, but they did study the effects that were in proximity to UFO events, followed the evidence where it led, and it led into some very uncomfortable areas. The Pentagon, of course, has, has been a little less than honest with the public about its interest in UFOs. But finally, as a result of the ATEP story that was in New York Times and uh, testimony from a lot of the people that worked with Column at OSAP behind closed doors, Congress is finally interested in the UFO aspect and more power to them. We're glad that they took the trouble to find out about the national security implications uh, of these UFO encounters over military bases. If that is the engine that drove the interest in, a, in creating a new program, which they have done, great. But you can't just stop there. Again, the underlying message of OSAP, BASS, the book that we wrote is, you have to follow the evidence where it leads. You cannot solve this mystery or these multiple mysteries by just looking at military cases, at, at UFOs that appear over military bases, at UFOs that are picked up on sensors or on thermal images like Tic Tac, like Gimbal. You're never gonna solve the big picture by only looking at that stuff. You have to follow the evidence where it leads and that takes courage and it takes some money too. So, When I was speaking to Travis Walton, he was of the opinion that some of these beings are benevolent and that they would cure cancer potentially. Someone else thought this as well. I believe her name is Anjali. She believes that they're kind, bestowing, generous, helpful. It doesn't sound like you all believe that, but, but please comment on that. Well, we, we don't even know if that's one intelligence or multiple. Maybe there's more than one, more than one answer. Maybe they're extraterrestrial. Uh, maybe they're interdimensional. Maybe they're time travelers. Maybe there's something else more exotic, crypto terrestrials, ultra terrestrials. We really don't know. And we don't know that it's just one. It could be many different ones with different kinds of agendas. Yeah, there are indications, call them alien editorials, people who are contactees, abductees over the years who say they've been given messages by these beings we want you to take care of your planet. We want you to be kind to each other. Quit blowing up atomic bombs. Pay attention to the environment. You're, you're polluting your planet. They express an interest in, in human development and human health. And there are rare instances where they've supposedly helped humans uh, overcome crippling diseases. But overall, you know, there are a lot of uh, contrary uh, indications as well. Sometimes these intelligences seem to be just completely oblivious to us. Uh, they don't care whether we see them or not. They, they don't seem to want to interact with us. Sometimes they lie to us. Uh, Jim Semivan of CIA, I interviewed him a couple of day, days ago. He says, you know, looking at the databases and the, and the vast uh, uh, overarching uh, information about the subject is that we don't know what they're here for or what their interest is in us. They lie to us. They trick us. They mislead us. They take on different shapes. We don't know where they're from. We don't know how long they've been here. I mean, we don't know any of the answers to the really big questions. So I am reluctant to assign um, a motive to, to any of them, of these different intelligences. We don't even know how many of them there are. I would agree with that. I, I, I think the, um, the, the vast majority of the cases that we looked at um, through the uh, OSAP database seem to indicate that um, people were having physiological effects and medical effects, but there were a subset of cases that do directly address your listener's question. And, and you know, there was 
a sense of uplift, uh, you know, feeling feeling that at the end of the day that this was a positive effect on on you know they they had a life changing experience as a result of interaction with UFOs, um, but in general it was a positive effect. And you know, as George mentioned, there were sort of there are sporadic cases of of uh, these uh, where where people are healed, quote unquote, from various ailments as a result. Uh, these are anecdotal. Uh, you know, I, everything to do with UFOs is anecdotal, unfortunately. But you know, in our database, I think that the vast majority of the cases uh, were not this benign subset, but there was a benign subset. Um, associated with uh, positive effects. I mean, even going back to uh, Skinwalker Ranch, um, just after the Sherman family um, had sold the property to Robert Bigelow in 1996, um, the last thing that they saw as, as the husband and wife were on the property was they looked up and it was a bright sunny day. And this disc, this silver disc came right down um, and and Harvard, you know, it was in the sky, uh, and they felt enormous positive uh, feelings and sort of, you know, um, after the nightmare they'd just gone through over a two-year period, this was sort of the parting shot from a silver disc, which was a classic uh, UFO uh, in the sky, and their overwhelming take-home message from that encounter was very positive. You know, very joyful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we have no idea why that happened, um, or was this was this just a random occurrence? Uh, but it was a very positive experience uh, in their book. Speaking of books, there are plenty of questions which reference the book. In fact, this guy Arthur, who asked a question earlier, Arthur Switalski, he's such a trooper. He just outlined page number and then a question on that page number. So on page forty-nine. He says, in regard to Lou, Lou Elizondo's remote viewing talents, has Lou or anyone else on the team of Bass used their remote viewing capabilities to see into installations of that purportedly house crafts slash bodies or to communicate with slash locate UAPs? And then they even wrote in bracket, this ties into page 120 on remote viewing. Well, I'm glad they, they have uh, spent so much time uh, annotating the pages because, uh, frankly, I don't know what page 120 <laughs> says. But um, in terms of remote viewing, um, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies uh, proposed a remote viewing project to Defense Intelligence Agency as part of the menu of proposals that we submitted in response to the request for proposals that DIA put out. Um, DIA actually rejected that proposal. Uh, they said, we don't want to spend enormous amounts of money train, training remote viewers, but they did allow us to conduct a pilot program on, the, uh, on remote viewing. And in the book, it, um, we, we did uh, contract with uh, legendary remote viewer, uh, Joe McMonigle, who um, we, you know, per, per the usual method for remote viewing, we gave him only latitude and long, longitude coordinates. And um, um, he, he produced a report for uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency, ultimately, with Bass, 
And um, in it, he mapped out the, the property and he talked about various beings on the property. Um, in terms of a full-fledged um, remote viewing exercise, uh, we were not permitted under the contract that we were uh, given to do a full remote viewing of the, uh, you know, during the BAS program. So we were not permitted to do that by the Defense Intelligence Agency. George, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I'd add this, is that uh, Colm and I wrote a, an earlier book called Hunt for the Skinwalker, which was uh, mainly focused on NIDS, which is the National Institute for Discovery Science, pardon all the acronyms, but NIDS was an organization created by Mr. Bigelow prior to him getting a contract for the DIA to run this other program. And NIDS studied, among other things, Skinwalker Ranch in, in Utah. And just as sort of an experiment, uh, as a side note, while preparing that book, I had tasked a, a remote viewing group here in Nevada to take a look at the ranch without telling them what I was asking them to look at. They found some interesting things. They found uh, evidence of military surveillance. They found some indications of underground facilities and control rooms. So they were able to pierce the veil of, of a sort. But of course, I, I was never able to physically verify what they saw in these remote viewing uh, visions was actually physically there. Yeah, it would be a really interesting task and, and endeavor to try to get remote viewers to take a look at not just the ranch, but other places like Area 51 or places where we suspect recovered discs or medical, medical metal pieces, bits and pieces from crash sites might be stashed. We haven't done it. Okay, this question comes from Doug Gummit. I'm late to the party, but I finally read the book. Sobering is right. Two questions. Number one, do other countries have the same after effects, specifically the archetypal beasts as North America, because it seems culturally specific? And then, well, let's tackle that one first. Well, for example, Bigfoot, if you talk about crypto creatures, has been seen everywhere in the world. I think maybe Hawaii might be the only place where something like it hasn't been seen, and I could be wrong there. Um, so a lot of the crypto type creatures that we see here, uh, dogmen, wolfmen, um, you know, uh, creatures that are were creatures, they've been seen all over the world in every culture. So there are a lot of similarities. I think there are specific kinds of crypto creatures that are unique to different parts of the world. Um, we've seen at Skinwalker, we've seen a, a mix of them. I mean, it, it almost gets bizarre and ridiculous. There are creatures that have been seen there by the ranchers and property owners, neighbors that don't exist in nature. Column saw one of them. Column experienced that walking with the female intelligence officer in the middle homestead at the ranch. And they saw what, uh, what uh, people have laughingly called a dino beaver. Uh, Column, maybe you want to tell that story, what this thing looked like. Yeah, I was <clears throat> I was on the property uh, with Robert Bigelow and uh, with um, the person in the book who was uh, a, de a defense and in intelligence analyst. Her name was Juliet Witt. And, um, you know, um, during the day, um, Juliet and, and I had walked the property. We had uh, done a lot of photography of the property. I had briefed Juliet on the various um, incidents that had happened during the National Institute for Discovery Science program on the ranch. Uh, Juliet climbed up on top of the Skinwalker Ridge, which is the northern pro property or the northern part of the, of the ranch. And she took a lot of photographs. Um, so that night at about 10 o'clock, uh, myself, Robert Bigelow and Juliet went down to an area 
near Homestead Number no. 2, which is kind of the center of the ranch, but also the location where over the last 25 years, there have been literally dozens of anomalies uh, reported and recorded and, uh, and, and witnessed. So uh, what we did was um, we, had, we had chairs with us. We sat out in the, in the middle of a pasture uh, near Homestead 2, about probably, I don't know, 50 feet away from Homestead 2. And the, the way the chairs were oriented were uh, we were back to back to back. So each one of us was facing in a 60, a 60 degree angle away from each other. So we could essentially cover the entire 360 degrees. So um, we noticed, myself and Robert Bigelow noticed that um, Juliet was, was really getting, um, you know, she was getting pretty jumpy because, you know, it was pretty, it was very, very dark. Uh, it was, you know, you could see the faint light of homesteads um, way in the distance. And we were sitting out sort of sitting ducks in her mind, uh, and, and I guess in our minds too, sitting ducks for anything that wanted to sort of pass by. So she was getting pretty nervous. So Robert Bigelow sort of got up and walked down. Uh, he was strolling down uh, about a hundred yards south. So I got up to, um, you know, to head over to the opposite direction in the direction of the uh, Homestead Two building, which is an abandoned homestead about a hundred years old that's kind of like in ruins. So about 30 feet in front of me, I see this, what looks like a, maybe somewhere between 100 to 150 pound creature that's motoring along the tree line in front of me. It's about 30 feet away. I looked over at Juliet Witt and she's looking at it too. And this thing looked like it had um, like blocked uh, blocks on the, spine emanating from the spine. Um, I, I guess the nearest equivalent I can think of in terms of what, what I was looking at is a very, very small version of a stegosaurus. But I could see also, and this was very, very dim light. Um, this creature was motoring north um, and it was absolutely silent. It had what looked like a flat tail uh, low to the ground. And it was a pretty bulky creature. I mean, it was small but it was pretty bulky. And my estimate, you know, in hindsight is probably somewhere between 100 and 150 pounds. But what the most bizarre aspect of this whole thing was that it was like a cone of silence had descended on the, uh, you know, on this whole area. And, you know, even the crickets, you know, this kind of ambient noise uh -huh. out, on the, out on Skinwalker Ranch when you're sitting there for hours, all of that had, had stopped. There was no noise whatsoever. And this thing was, was motoring north. It should have been rustling and, you know, leaves and grass as it went by. It was maybe, I get, I'm guessing about 30, maybe 40 feet away from me. It was probably 50 feet away from Juliet. So we watched this thing. It, it made a beeline for the, the corner of the abandoned homestead too and went behind it. And it was like, you know, probably a few seconds later, Myself and Juliet sort of went right over to try to follow this thing to get a, a better view of it. And uh, we couldn't see any side of it. We went around the corner of the, of the building, turned right, and there, there's a sort of a gap between the corner of the building and a, a set of trees that eventually ends up on the, uh, on the track that goes east-west on Skinwalker Ranch. 
we could not see any sign of this creature. But, you know, it, it's kind of like the moment in time uh, was pretty short, you know, maybe, I don't know, probably less than 30 seconds when we were looking at this. There was absolute silence. And it was like uh, a sort of a version of shock um, when you're seeing something like this. And then by the time it got behind the building, I mean, if we had had the ultimate sort of planning move into high gear instead of being in, involved with this Oz effect, um, we could have got the uh, night vision binoculars out. Uh, we searched for the creature with night vision binoculars, but we couldn't find anything. But this is an example of the kind of thing that happens on Skinwalker Ranch. And yes, it is very easy to sit on a couch or sit on an armchair and say, why the hell didn't you guys, you know, take your night vision binoculars out? But you had to be there. Um, you know, there are plenty of instances on Skinwalker Ranch when we have captured photographs, we have captured videos of fast moving orbs and this kind of thing. We have gobs of photographs of, of these orb-like structures on, on Skinwalker Ranch. But that time looking at this creature, you know, I, you know, uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would have had the night vision binoculars a lot more sort of prepared in my grasp. For people who want to see some of those images that you recorded or videos, where did they go? Um, they're all in the, uh, the NIS repository, which has never been released. Is there a plan to release it? Um, that's, uh, I, I don't own that, uh, that data set. That would have to be the owner of the, of the data set. And that would be, uh, Robert Bigelow and NIDS. I mean, NIDS is a private, uh, was a private company and it was accumulating private privately held data, uh, for analysis. Now, all of the data that NIDS acquired over time, um, is still on the NIDS website. There is a cached version of the NIDS website. We wrote gobs and gobs of papers that we published on the NIDS website. All you need to do is Google National Institute for Discovery Science Wikipedia, and you will find a full uh, cached version of the NIDS website. There are dozens and dozens of papers on the NIDS website that the NIDS scientists um, actually published on that website. So in terms of our published data, it's all available. You know, just happens photographs of orbs are not available, but there is a very large data set of published literature involving everything from investigations of cattle mutilations to investigations of UFO phenomena. And they're all written up in the scientific vernacular on the NIDS website. And actually, I looked at this website yesterday so it is actually available as we speak. So if people want to look at the raw data as published in these, uh, in these NIDS studies, they're all available in this cached website. I should point out the OSAP uh, information and database is mostly not public either. We've given in our book, we've given a glimpse of, of what was available. Uh, as Colin mentioned earlier, uh, Bass, produced 104 reports that were submitted to DIA, many of them with photographs and charts and all kinds of evidence. Uh, that information has not been made public. Uh, we hope that someday it will be, 
you know, in writing the book, uh, we told as much of that story as we were allowed to tell. It took 14 months for the Pentagon to sign off on our manuscript. They went through the, this Dopser process. We did have to make some changes uh, that they mandated, uh, and specifically, especially about names of active duty personnel. We told as much of that story as we could, but there's a gigantic amount of information that was sent to DIA uh, that uh, I know a lot of FOIA requests have been filed. None of that has been made public yet, but we think it should all be made public eventually. This question comes from Jackson Vega. Ask them what they think of Stephen Greer's CE5 protocol. Well, um, I think it's worth a try. You know, I, I, I had a chance to interview some guys who, uh, they, they are sort of like the prophet Yahweh. It's this guy who 20 years ago said he could call in UFOs and he'd go out and meditate and try to draw things in. And, uh, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Uh, the, there's a, a group of uh, fellows that I know who have tried this, picked up the mantle, and have been had some amazing experiences that they've videotaped. Um, summoners, I, I think they call it summoning. So it, it does happen. It, it can happen. Stephen Greer, who did some really great uh, early work in getting UFO whistleblowers to come forward, getting their testimony out to uh, national um, media organizations, is a champion of the CE5. He charges a lot of money for people to go out into the desert with him and call in flying saucers. Uh, a lot of people are put off by how ex expensive it gets and, and where the money goes, especially since it looks like people can do this on their own without paying Stephen Greer to do it. I, you know, I don't know if it really works, uh, but what the heck, I say it's worth giving it a try. Colm, do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I would agree. I think, uh, I think it's worth you know, attempting it, um, I know that it's been attempted in multiple places. Um, there's been large programs in South America um, associated with uh, summoning uh, UFOs. And uh, from the reports that I've seen, mostly um, not scientific reports, but books and, uh, and magazine articles, that there does seem to be a level of success. But I would inject a note of caution into this is, be careful what you actually uh, summon. And, you know, um, it, 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 it could be that these uh, objects come in all shapes and sizes. And like uh, we've said for the last uh, hour or so, we don't know what the agenda of, of these objects are. I mean, it could be some, some have a benign agenda and it could be that some have uh, not a benign agenda. So I would inject a note of caution. I personally, I would not do that um, because I have too res much respect uh, and caution regarding this phenomena uh, because we know too little about this phenomenon. And um, it's, it's a case of be careful what you wish for. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. I've been told, Kurt, look into it and perform it. I'm not... I'm not going to, at least not anytime <laughs> soon, because it, it's playing with fire. It's worse than playing with fire. When I was speaking to Tom DeLong, he expressed similar sentiments, saying that you don't know what you're dealing with, and it's it could be extremely, extremely dangerous. So I'm of that same opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of liken it to, I mean, if you summon anything without, uh, without careful sort of training and all of that, um, you, you really are opening yourself up. I would say the same goes for ayahuasca tourism, for example. And, and this, this whole idea of sort of 
going to somebody's place that you don't know who they are and taking a bunch of ayahuasca or DMT or any of the hallucinogenics. Um, again, it's be careful what you wish for. Uh, I mean, the originator of this whole DMT phenomenon, Rick Strassman, um, who was actually, you know, he was fundamental in sort of initiating the, the focus on DMT in the Western world. And he did a, an NIH-sponsored study of injecting a whole bunch of volunteers under, under medical, medical supervision uh, in New Mexico. And uh, there's an enormous number of these uh, young volunteers uh, reported encountering these creatures and unusual, uh, you know, unusual people in, in these other realms. But, you know, Rick Strassman later on decided to back away from that research because he found that some of these, uh, these young people were having long-term psychological effects. And again, you know, under, under control conditions, it's all very well to do this, but, you know, what are the long-term effects? And what are, the, what are these entities that people are actually meeting and conversing with? I mean, do you really get the secrets of the universe or do you get something that you may not have bargained for and that you find very a lot of difficulty in getting rid of? And, you know, I, I mean, the list goes on and on. Teenagers playing Ouija boards and what have we. You've got to have a certain amount of caution uh, when you're approaching these kinds of phenomena. And um, especially when we know lo so little about what the long-term effects are. This question comes from Richard Brewster. I just read Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Now with all these research, with all this research being unable to come to a conclusion as to the origins or intents of the phenomenon, does something lead you to speculate in one extraterrestrial origin direction versus the phenomenon being of earth origin? I'll just tell you, I've been as a, as an investigative reporter, I've been chasing this since uh, the late eighties. I think the first, UFO related interview I did was 1987 and I jumped into with both feet starting in 1989 and the dominant paradigm at that time was these are ETs within UFO world within the, the community of UFO researchers they generally thought these are extraterrestrials or visitors from other planets who've been coming here for a long time if you look back at the history of humanity of recorded history these things have been reported and every culture on every continent throughout human history in one form or another. They've been with us a long time, maybe been here longer than us, but we still don't really know what they are. Uh, that ET uh, paradigm, that which is where I started, it changed over time. You know, reading Dr. Jacques Vallée's uh, books, I, I think the first interview I had with him in 1990, he said, look, I, I, I'll tell you, I'm gonna be really disappointed if it turns out that the ultimate answer to the UFO mystery is that it's merely visitors from other planets, because he said the technology that we've seen that's been demonstrated and documented over the years is they control space-time. Uh, somehow they can manipulate gravity and time and space in ways that we don't understand. So they could be extraterrestrial and interdimensional and time travelers all at once. They could be something even more exotic that we don't understand. I think the ET explanation is one that is possible but we really don't know. I mean, some of these beings and their messages to contactees, they say they're from other planets. But again, I would emphasize you can't really trust them because they lied to us uh, over the years. So ET is one possibility, but it's only one. And 
My suspicion is it's, it's much more exotic and more complicated than that, that whatever it is has been here with us forever, uh, maybe longer than us, that it lives here. It's not from some other place, that it lives here. And that's just a guess. We really don't know. And, and I, I'm not going to be the person to figure it out. Somebody's going to win a Nobel Prize someday figuring this out, but it's obviously not going to be me. Colin? Well, I think, you know, <clears throat> I think it's really a shame that um, for 75 years, a lot of really smart people have looked at this phenomenon. And, um, you know, there have been stops and starts and, and um, small programs, large programs. But, you know, ultimately, this requires sort of a level of funding from the National Science Foundation, from the National Institutes of Health. I mean, the National Institutes of Health annual budget is $44 billion or $43 billion in thereabouts. Um, even if a, a small subset of, of that were devoted to um, effects, long-term effects in terms of uh, psychological effects, sociological effects, um, physical effects, uh, medical effects of UFOs, I think that would be a, a window into this phenomenon if the National Science uh, Foundation were able to fund a, say, a 10-year program that was would focus on, you know, getting to the heart of what this uh, UFO performance, all of the physics associated with, uh, with UFOs, and come up with a theoretical model uh, based on actual data. Um, that is really where, where I think this whole thing should be going, because we are unfortunately in the situation where we've had small sort of programs that are trying to do something um, and then they get truncated or aborted. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of data that comes out. I think all we know at the end of the day is that what looks like some kind of intelligence seems to be interacting with the human race. Now, is that intelligence living on the planet since before humans? Or is it coming from another dimension? Or is it coming from another planet? Um, there really is not enough data to, to, to come down on either side. I mean, we don't even know uh, what sort of level of, um, you know, um, I, I would guess agenda um, or, you know, what, what, this, what is going to happen with this, this phenomenon in the future as it continues interacting with, with humans. It seems like over the last 75 years, there seem to have been sort of a set of different waves associated with how this, uh, this phenomenon has been interacting with humans. But again, we're looking through sort of very sort of distorted viewpoints. You know, I'll give you one example. Uh, during the OSAP program, we interviewed uh, uh, Colonel Barry Hennessy, who is a legend at Air Force Office of Special Investigations, also known as AFOSIPJ. And one of the things that he said was, yes, of course the Air Force utilized the, uh, the UFO phenomenon back in the 70s and 80s uh, to disguise you know, some of our really advanced technology programs. You know, when, when an advanced version of a, an aircraft crashed in, in uh, Northern New Mexico in the, uh, in, in the 80s, you know, we did a lot of sort of behind the scene 
amplifying the idea that UFOs were involved in order to cover the tracks of a, a very advanced part of a special access program had crashed in northern New Mexico. So we know also from interviewing uh, Colonel Hennessy that some of the so-called northern tier intrusions of UFOs into the northern tier um, Air Force bases, the missile bases that dot along the northern part of the United States um, near the Canadian border, some of those were actually um, ours. They were, they were int intrusion detection operations to see how ready the, uh, the Air Force bases were in terms of reacting to unknowns coming over. But Colonel Hennessy also told us some of the intrusions that happened were not ours. You know, it was like, we have no idea who they were. They were certainly not ours, but we don't know who they, who they were. So you have this sort of constant sort of um, ambiguity regarding who owns what's, what's going on. Is it ours or is it, or is it theirs? I mean, one of, the, one of the, the analytical sort of tools that we've used uh, at, uh, at the end of OSAP was we, we use this sort of idea that there was, there's two levels of deception going on uh, you know, with, the, with the UFO phenomenon. One is the level of deception where the United States government and military is deceiving the public in terms of mimicking the UFO uh, phenomenon for their own purposes in terms of operational security. And then there's the other side of the phenomenon where the phenomenon appears to be mimicking some of our special access programs. For example, these um, the eruption of the large black triangles that happened um, throughout the United States, through Europe, in many places in South America, um, all of these huge triangles um, seem to be very closely aligned what, uh, with a lot of people would have imagined were special access programs of the United States military. But at the same time, you know, there were hundreds of cases that were mapped and investigated by our, our organization, National Institute for Discovery Science and OSAP, uh, that documented these large black triangles that were floating at very low altitudes, brightly lit over populated areas or down interstate highways. Now, why would a special access program that was sort of top of the line mm. technology by the United States military be so foolhardy as to um, you know, be flying over populated areas, fully lit uh, with bright lights, um, and, and sometimes altitudes reported by eyewitnesses a couple of hundred feet. I mean, that is a gross violation of national security parameters of special access programs. But yet there are hundreds and hundreds of cases of these that were very, very well documented by both National Institute for Discovery Science and by OSAP. I mean, the case that I talked about in, um, in, uh, uh, in Georgia involving this very large black triangle that was literally floating over this guy's uh, neighborhood, that happened in 2009. I mean, it was, you know, it was not sort of way back in history. It was relatively recent. But we have these, um, during the sort of investigative process, uh, we have these two layers of deception that we always have to look through in order to get to the, the, the data regarding UFOs. And that's not like a normal aspect of scientific 
you know, research or analysis. Normally in the field of biology or in the field of physics, you are not looking through data or at data through a couple of layers of deception. I mean, it makes, a thing, it makes things very, very difficult um, of applying the scientific method to these kinds of uh, problems. George, anything to add to that? No, just uh, sort of uh, playing off of what I, I said to begin with is, you know, uh, as a journalist, I've tried to get my head around this and I've, and I've investigated it for more than 30 years. And I don't have the answers to it. The best, uh, the best evidence for me, what got me interested in the subject, is the paper trail. Our government has known for a long time these things are real. And I know the scientific community, the journalism industry have both dismissed it. They've laughed at it. They've disregarded it. They've paid it very little attention over many decades. But our government, our military specifically, knows this is real. They've known it for a long time. And you can trace it through this paper trail of documents. Internal reports, many of them written before the Freedom of Information Act exists, in which they admit to each other candidly in documents that they never thought would ever see the light of day. This is real. It's not ours. We don't think it's Russians. It can do things we can't do. We need to figure this out. And ever since then, there have been studies of it. I have followed that paper trail and others have as well. There's a legitimate mystery here that needs to be figured out. It hasn't been figured out. It's been dismissed and ridiculed and laughed at. And now, because of some of the information that's come forward and been made public by the likes of Dr. Colm Kelleher, Dr. Hal Putoff, Dr. Kit Green, Dr. Eric Davis, Jacques Vallée, Edgar Mitchell, serious scientists, serious professionals who've had the courage to look at this and then allowed me to be a fly on the wall, there's a lot of progress that's been made. Hopefully that will continue. But you can't just ignore it and ridicule it. Um, your viewers, uh, Kurt, the people who listen to your program, big brain people like that, need to take a look at this. It, it's a legitimate mystery. It really is going on. It may be central to human existence. Uh, it may be the biggest question we ever tackle. Once we figure it out, it will change everything. It, it, we're already undergoing some changes because of the revelations of the last four years. And it's a worthwhile endeavor. We need to fund it. It needs to be studied. We need to figure this out. That's what I would add. You mentioned that there are black helicopters that follow a UFO sighting. Do you think these helicopters are part of the phenomenon or do you think that they're government related? Is the government tracking, picking up some trace? What is the purpose? If you were to speculate off, obviously, when we're talking about this topic, all of it is speculation anyway, or most of it is right. speculation. My guess is it's both. It's both the phenomena that assumes different shapes, these things, these craft, the beings themselves are shapeshifters. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence over a long period of time that they can change their shape. And I think some of them appear in the sky as black helicopters at the site of, for example, cattle mutilations, which is a whole other topic we can get into. And then there are government uh, operatives who are monitoring the phenomena themselves, who assume that same thing, who operate uh, and they know that it's going to be dismissed as some weird conspiracy, some UFO-related uh, sighting, they can operate with impunity, knowing that there won't be any real investigation by science or the media because it's conspiracy stuff. You know, it's wild, wacky conspiracy stories. I think in many cases, the black helicopters are both some unknown phenomena assuming that shape and our government monitoring that phenomenon. Colin? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> back in the uh, in the NIDS era, we 
we have we were very fortunate to meet a guy called Captain Keith Wolverton, um, who was stationed in Cache County just outside Malcolm Air Force Base in the uh, in in the seventies and eighties. And you know, Malcolm Air Force Base is legendary in the UFO uh, annals because there have been so many incidents where um, low-flying UFOs have been documented around Malcolm Air Force Base, including during the late, late 1960s of, of the actual missile launch parameters being interfered with by UFOs. All of that is well documented in books. Um, but what, what really struck us in talking with uh, Captain Keith Wolverton was that he became uh, friendly with the base commander at Malcolm Air Force Base and so he, the police force around Malcolm Air Force Base began a very close level of cooperation between uh, the police and the um, and the military people on the Air Force Base so anytime a UFO would show up um, Captain Keith Wolverton knew about it and so he was able to document over time um, there would be sometimes uh, jet aircraft launched from Malcolm Air Force Base to try to intercept these UFOs. But one of the really weird features that happened during this wave of UFO activity was that side by side uh, with this wave of UFO activity, there was also a wave of helicopters that neither the Air Force Base personnel or the police force that were tasked with investigating co-investigating these cases um, had, had any idea where they were coming from. Now, I'm not talking about one or two sightings of helicopters. I'm talking about somewhere between 50 and 100 separate sightings of these quote-unquote black helicopters that seemed to show up in the aftermath of uh, UFOs. And layered on top of that, uh, according to Cat, Captain Keith Wolverton, was there was a, a literal explosion of unusual phenomena in people's homes and around the area within a 10, 20 mile radius of Malmstrom Air Force Base. But the point I'm trying to make is that um, the Air Force Base commander was well aware of, the, of these black helicopters and he had the wherewithal to be able to track of where these helicopters were coming from. And he ran into a brick wall. I mean, he simply could not have uh, any information on why these dozens and dozens of black helicopters were showing up around uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base, usually in the aftermath of UFO sightings and launching fighter aircraft to intercept these UFO sightings. So that's it, one example of what, what I'm talking about. So we have these, uh, this ambiguity um, regarding these helicopters, who owns them, who is, who is uh, flying them and why are they around? I mean, some of them are obviously United States military and some of them actually have been tracked to various locations um, that, that they are obviously US military uh, helicopters, but others um, are just, they kind of seem to disappear into the, into the woodwork. And um, there is a big question mark about, about their origins. So in answer to your question, I would say both. They're, uh, they're, they're both United States military and they're both from somewhere else. Is there any evidence that the cattle mutilations are because of the government, that the government instigates them in some way? 
Well, that's a long, long story. I, I, <laughs> uh, I mean, OSAP did not do any investigations of cattle mutilations. There were two, uh, there were two aspects that we decided, um, and the Defense Intelligence Agency decided we would not spend a lot of time and resources, actually three of them. Uh, one was the remote viewing that I've already discussed. The second was the cattle mut mutilation phenomenon. Uh, and the third one was we, we decided not to um, recruit a whole team to investigate uh, UFO quote-unquote abductions, because again, that required an enormous amount of uh, resources that, I that we knew at the time were not going to be available. So cattle mutilations were not investigated by the, uh, the OSAP program. But um, back in the National Institute for Discovery Science era, uh, we actually did a lot of forensic investigations of uh, cattle mutilations. And again, I refer to the NIDS website, which you can find uh, by Googling National Institute for Discovery Science uh, uh, on Wikipedia. And there are dozens of reports of NIDS investigations of cattle mutilations on, I, I will cut to the chase basically and say that um, we literally investigated dozens of mutilations. How do we investigate these? We actually had full-time veterinarian on our staff, vet veterinarian who was also a PhD in pathology, so who was well used to doing necropsies, uh, you know, animal autopsies. And so our, our sort of bottom line was that cattle mutilations, there was a body of evidence that was lying on the ground and if we could get to that, that body quick enough after death that we went, might be able to get some answers. So we evolved over many years, a situation where we had a bunch of veterinarians who were accredited veterinarians on call. We had a bunch of police uh, officers throughout the Western states in the United States also on call. So we were able to get um, reports of cattle mutilations extremely quickly. And the third thing that we had was that we had a menu of laboratory, uh, analytical laboratories at our, on, on call, on speed dial, so that if we did manage to get samples, we, we were able to do histopathology analysis, we were able to do chemical analysis, biochemical analysis, and you know, uh, pretty well all of the different analytical frameworks. So uh, we were pretty well equipped at the end of NIDS to be able to investigate cattle mutilations. And what we found was that there was a really two, two, two types of mutilations. Once, one was the standard sort of mutilation where the, uh, the eye, the ear, uh, the uh, sex organs uh, were, were removed from the animal. And, you know, during that situation, that, 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 uh, program for, for NIDS, we did a lot of analytical chemistry. We did uh, elemental analysis of the blood from mutilated animals. Occasionally we found what looked like sedatives. We used gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. We used liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry. We used inductive coupled uh, plasma mass spectrometry to determine elemental analysis. So we threw the kitchen sink in terms of analytical capability at what was in these animals following 
necropsy. We also did histology analysis and we determined that yes, sharp instruments were used, but some of the time we used, uh, we, we were able to document um, compounds like oxindole, succinylcholine, which are sedatives. So that made us suspicious on, on other occasions, including investigations up in Montana, uh, we were able to locate, um, you know, 10 gauge needles that were found under uh, the uh, some of these animals. In other cases, we were able to find medical paraphernalia associated with exsanguinating an animal. In other words, hooking up an animal to a large gauge needle and, and removing all the blood from the animal. So we began to get suspicious as time went on that there was a pattern associated with some of these cases. So we, we put out the hypothesis that, you know, maybe this was part of uh, a, a case of, um, you know, applying sedatives to the animals um, and then investigating these animals for the spread of say an infectious disease organism. And, you know, a lot of these infectious disease could be um, through the Western herds in the United States uh, we, we, we investigated or we put out the hypothesis that maybe um, some of these infectious proteins called prions might have been the source of concern uh, as they were sort of exploding in the United Kingdom and Europe in the 1990s um, and killing a lot of people who were eating contaminated meat. So there might have been a small, very, very small program. All you need is a couple of trained veterinarians a couple of skilled surgeons, um, a couple of helicopters, a uh, very small program, in other words, that could monitor um, the spread of an infectious organism through the cattle uh, in the wild in the western part of the United States. Why would you want to do that in, rather than going to, uh, say, slaughterhouses and abattoirs and sampling from there? Uh, the answer to that is you would not get the same amount of data from sampling abattoirs and slaughterhouses as you would by flying in at night and, you know, uh, basically sampling animals within, you know, several hundred miles um, if you were trying to track the spread of an infectious organism. Prion is one, one, uh, one an infectious protein that was responsible for you know, destruction of millions of animals in the United Kingdom and Europe. And it was a source of huge amounts of concern in the, uh, in, in the United States in the 1990s, as especially the, uh, you know, the uh, FDA and the, the USDA, uh, the, the United States Department of Agriculture um, were very concerned about the, the spread of this. So, um, that was one hypothesis we came up with. Why did we come up with this? Because we use forensic analysis to determine that somebody was using sharp instruments on these animals to cut them open. Uh, we found that unequivocally from the histopathology analysis. And then we found all of these suspicious compounds through standard forensic analytical uh, chemistry. And, and we also found evidence of medical hardware underneath and, and associated with a small number of these animals. So, um, you know, that, that we put out this hypothesis. And again, it's these published papers are on the NIDS website if people wanna take a look at them. Let me add this. 
Kurt, uh, Please. to boil that down. So Column's hypothesis was there are two levels of mutilators, uh, mystery mutilators. There's the original one that's been carrying this out for decades under the cover of night, carving up animals with surgical precision, removing the same sort of parts, not leaving behind certain compounds, not leaving behind medical instruments. It's a complete mystery how it's carried out. There were some cases where high heat instrumentation was used in these cases, the classic mutilation stories that we've always heard. NIDS investigated those, and, and most of the cases they investigated did not show these kind of telltale signs of human intervention. Someone, mystery mutilators, have been carrying this out for decades over a broad uh, part of the United States and, and other parts of the world. And then later, there were an additional level of mutilators who came in under the umbrella of this seemingly paranormal mystery, who operated with impunity, thinking they can get away with it. No one's really going to seriously investigate it because it's the space people doing these mis mysterious mutilations. There were cases on the ranch, for example, that defy explanation. I'm thinking of one in particular. There were something like 14 head of cattle that vanished, uh, that you'd see the tracks lead out into the snow, and then the cow is gone as if it's sucked up into the sky. There were cases that the neighbors reported of cattle that seemed to have been dropped from the sky. Their legs were broken. Um, there were cases on the ranch, one in particular that we wrote about in, a, in The Hunt for the Skinwalker. The rancher and his wife had had all this bizarre activity on their property. They carry on. Uh, they, they were really financially strapped because of the loss of these very expensive animals. It's a Sunday morning. It's a bright, sunny day, quiet out there in the country. They go out to tag the ears of newborn calves. They had several calves on, the, on their pasture. They're going to tag the ears, which is a process that the ranchers do to identify these animals. There's a, a calf and its mom 50 yards from the house where they live. That's the first one they come to. They tag the ear of this newborn calf. They move off across the property again, very quiet. There's no obstruction. The weather is calm. They go off on the property about 30 minutes or so later. A dog that's traveling with them alerts them that something's going on. So they look back at this calf, the first one that they had uh, tagged, and the mom, the cow, is going around in circles. Its eyes are bulging out. It's obviously distressed. It's dragging its leg behind it. Rancher and his wife go back over there to where this, this calf was. This calf is completely emaciated. It is wiped out. It is stripped of all its flesh. The only thing left is bones and high. There's no blood in the animal. There's no blood on the ground. 75 pounds of meat gone. How did it happen? Why didn't they, why weren't they able to hear it? Could a predator, what, what predator comes in and wipes out a calf and makes no sound and leaves no blood? Uh, NIDS team brought in a tracker, professional tracker, to look for animal tracks, to look for human tracks, vehicle tracks, didn't find it. They took samples of that, sent it to two different pathology labs. The, uh, the investigators figured out that two different cutting instruments had been used, something like a heavy machete to whack off chunks of flesh, and then something with the scalpel-type precision. How does that happen? How does it happen in broad daylight that nobody sees it? Now, is that the mystery government mutilators? A team of commandos comes in completely undetected and wipes out this calf and leaves it there for people to, to find? Um, or is it something else? I, I think it's probably something else. Maybe Colin wants to add to that. Well, <clears throat> you know, the, it goes back to um, the idea that it's very, very easy for a team of people who are uh, sampling carrying out these illegal uh, killings of cattle 
uh, sampling at night because you've got two things that are working for you. And that is um, number one, um, you've got this whole aura of UFOs associated with cattle mutilations and no respectable veterinarian or no respectable police officer wants to have anything to do with this if there's even the taint of quote unquote aliens associated uh, with it. And the second thing that you have going for you is you have the decomposition process, especially in summer. I mean, the decomposition process of a, a cow is extremely rapid because their entire uh, rumen, which is the second or third stomach that they have, is loaded with bacteria and microorganisms, which actually chew up uh, the entire flesh extremely quickly. So all you have to do if you are actually sampling an animal on the ground is wait for 48 hours and pretty well all of the evidence is gone by means of mother nature. You don't even have to cover up your tracks. All you have to do is, is take your samples and, and get out of there. But you know, what George is saying is absolutely true. There were a small number of these cases that were, were, were we documented and they were obviously not the, uh, you know, the perpetrators that I've been talking about. There was something else going on. Um, and we, we documented cases in Northern California that were, they also had this weird um, effect that, that George described of the case on, in Utah. Uh, we documented other cases in California too. So um, there was a small component of these that had this um, bizarre paranormal taint to it. And then you had this other nor uh, large number of cases uh, that were consistent with some kind of a sampling exercise. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing as the UFO phenomenon. Uh, the United States government used the UFO phenomenon as a way of covering up their, their special access programs. So maybe some sort of small contractor was using the UFO lore associated with, with cattle mutilations to also cover up their tracks. Um, you know, same kind of thing. There are levels of deception involved in investigating these kinds of anomalies. George and Colm, I know you both have to go. So how about I read two questions and you can choose one of them. So this one <laughs> comes from Stephen Greenstreet, and he wants to know, what is the best piece of evidence of something paranormal occurring at Skinwalker Ranch? And I'll add an addendum, best public piece of evidence. Okay, then. The second question is Chris one two three four five six seven eight nine. It says, and this is a wonderful question. Okay, if there were no observer to witness these UAPs, Bigfoot, cattle mutilations, dark shadow, etc., would they still happen? How much of these phenomena are perhaps co-created by a consciousness observing them? Are these phenomena independent entities with lives, history, goals, instincts of their own, or are they manifestations for the benefit of a conscious observer? in our case, a human being. <laughs> I think you should take that one, Colm. Well, I mean, you have brought up the sort of, uh, or your listener, that's a very sort of loaded question um, because it does, it does get into this whole um, sort of dichotomy between uh, observer versus observed it gets into sort of the, the, the quantum, these quantum realities of how, if, whether or not observers interfere with, uh, with 
uh, with experiments at the at the quantum level. And also it, it does sort of raise the question of uh, what exactly is human consciousness? And, you know, what, one of one of what the, the aspects that has been really intriguing me is in the last five to 10 years, there really has been a, a sort of a literal explosion of uh, new people who are entering the field of, uh, you know, the investigation of human consciousness and, and they're, you know, some of these people are sort of taking a stance on human consciousness that is away from the standard dogma that we've had for about 100 years, which is that consciousness arises as a result of neurochemical trafficking in the brain. And some of these people like, you know, I, I can think of Bernardo Kastrup in the Netherlands and Donald Hoffman, who is a pre professor at UC Irvine, um, Federico Fahin, who is literally the, in, uh, the inventor of the microprocessor at Intel Corporation. I mean, talk about hard-nosed materialists, but I mean, he's written a book or, or two books, I think, recently th that are basically saying that consciousness may not arise as a, as a result of neurochemical trafficking in the brain. We've got people like Edward, Professor Edward Kelly, at the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia, um, you know, and even in the biological arena, you've got um, Professor uh, Robert Lanza, who's written a couple of books on on biocentrism. I mean, these people are all all saying the same thing that you know, consciousness is prime. You know, consciousness is really the sort of the mover and the shaker in this whole equation. So, you know. Bernardo Kastrup especially has sort of, uh, in some of the blogs that he's written for Scientific American and uh, elsewhere, he's really reduced it down to uh, sort of concepts that, you know, even a biologist like myself can understand. And that is, you know, he's, he's put out this concept, you know, of, of you know, maybe, maybe our, our sense of reality is, is actually more like the dashboard of an aircraft and that you're flying an aircraft via instruments and outside this aircraft um, there's a sort of a storm and there's a whole load of uh, different things happening but the pilot of the aircraft is flying purely by use of this instrumentation and so you know human that the, the translation of the metaphor into human consciousness is that human perception is a function of the dashboard and our five senses are, are essentially the instrumentation that we're flying with through life. And outside these five senses, there's a whole world that we are not perceiving. And so one hypothesis of the intersection of UFOs versus this sort of avant-garde way of looking at human consciousness is that maybe UFOs are outside the dashboard um, and they, they seem to appear or disappear at sort of a, out of whim or sort of a, in, in a very sort of fast way, um, maybe they're outside this sort of dashboard and that, you know, people in the future as they attack the UFO phenomenon, uh, we need sort of people who are um, part of this vanguard of human consciousness research because there may be overlaps that we just have not looked at. And, you know, the sort of, the standard way of looking at the UFO phenomenon 
especially sort of um, from the perspective of the military intelligence apparatus is we are going to study only um, the UFO performance. We're going to study only the five observables uh, or the six observables, the, the parameters of a UFO that make it extremely um, unlikely that um, it is you know, a special access program from the United States. Um, and that's all we're going to do. Everything else is off the table because, quote unquote, it's not a part of the mandate from the United States security apparatus. But guess what? You know, maybe the UFO phenomenon doesn't care at all about the uh, security parameters of the United States on what constitutes security parameters and what constitutes a viable way of, of investigating this phenomenon. Maybe the United States military is going to investigate using this narrow perspective and completely miss the boat. I mean, we've seen and heard snippets and rumors and innuendo that some of these tic-tac pilots had long-term uh, effects, you know, that might even include long-term effects on their psychology and maybe their health or maybe their consciousness. So I see going forward that, you know, we really need to broaden the scope of the UFO investigative framework as opposed to narrowing it. And I don't care what a bureaucrat from under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence decides to say what is part of the United States uh, military uh, perspective or not. I don't think the UFO phenomenon really cares. As for the question from Stephen about the best evidence regarding the ranch of paranormal events, I'd answer it this way. I mean, you know, Robert Bigelow in an interview we did uh, years ago and then another one last year, you know, it's maddening what happens at the ranch. It's frustrating in that whatever the intelligence is that's there, it calls the shots. We get to see what it allows us to see. The most compelling accounts come from eyewitnesses, the people who've been on the property. You know, Bigelow bought the ranch in the mid-90s. There's been a constant presence there since. The NID study, the OSAP study, and then the current efforts by Brandon Fugel, and all three of those groups have experienced the same kinds of things. It's never exactly the same. The only thing that's predictable is its unpredictability. A lot of the, the accounts, the very compelling stories, are things that people see once and then it's gone. This intelligence, and I think it is an intelligence, plays games. It's a trickster. It messes with your mind. It always seems to know what you are going to do before you do it. So uh, dramatic incidents can happen, and there's nothing left behind uh, to, to prove that it ever happened. But occasionally, it becomes, it has a physical effect. It has physical, demonstrable, measurable effects. For example, what happens to the animals? You have cattle that are mutilated. You have cats that are carved up in the middle of the night in a snowstorm, dogs that are incinerated, horses that are slashed by these crypto creatures. Those things happen. They were documented. Uh, you have uh, physical effects. For example, there were four large bulls during the NIDS era that were in this corral. The rancher and his wife are going to town. They've already lost a lot of different uh, heads of livestock. They're in danger of going under financially. They say to each other casually, boy, if something happens to one of those bulls, we're in big trouble. They come back and less than an hour later, all four of the bulls are gone. In a panic, they go looking for them. Somehow, those four bulls had been, in essence, dematerialized from the corral 
and crammed into this tiny storage shed adjacent to this corral. They're in, a, in there, the rancher finds them, they're kind of in a trance crammed in there. You could not get these, these bulls into there with a forklift and a team of army commandos, but somehow they got in there. They let the bulls out, the bulls kick off the side of it, they get out, they're very surly in a bad mood, photos are taken. The subsequent physical effects that were measured by the NIDS guys were the entire metal corral had been magnetized and it stayed magnetized for a couple of days. There are all these measurable EM effects and effects on equipment. For example, all three of those organizations have put all kinds of cameras out there, camera gear, both up on, on, on uh, poles and at different places of the ranch. And they carry uh, gear, compasses and other sensors to try to document effects. This phenomena, whatever it is, laughs at it. It will knock out compasses. Compasses will spin around. Uh, they're, they're of no use. You have a camera, the batteries drain, the camera dies right before something happens where the camera would have been able to document it. It's infuriating. It's frustrating to try to document things, but it happens over and over again over a period of almost close to 30 years now. Um, so there are measurable effects. There was an ice circle that we documented during the, the NIDS period that the NIDS guys documented, an impossible thing that was carved in this tiny little thin layer of ice. Uh, they can't figure out how it happened. There was, a, there was one instance where something went up a 75-foot telephone pole where they had a camera and destroyed it, destroyed it while another camera was watching it. Whatever did it was invisible. Um, it's very frustrating. I think it's frustrating on purpose. It gives us glimpses of this other reality at times. There were holes in the sky that would appear and craft would come in and out. There were craft that seemed to fly directly into Skinwalker Ridge uh, that defy our physics. Uh, there were other craft that were, you know, the rancher and the family, they're in the first years that they were there, they'd see these things. They're not trying to document it for a UFO audience. They're trying to survive out there on what they thought was their dream property. They end up giving it up and moving away because they were so frustrated by what happened to them. So it is difficult to document. It is a challenge to document it, but it's a it's an intriguing challenge. It's an exciting challenge, and it's one we have to take on. There is physical evidence that can be examined and investigated. A lot of the things that happen are not in the physical realm. That makes it more of a challenge, I would think. Thank you so much, George. Thank you so much, Colm. I appreciate it. There are more than 3,000 people watching. So say hello to them many of them are just expressing their thanks and plaudits toward you all so thank you so much it's it's a pleasure it's it's been it's a it's a blessing thank you thanks kurt talk to you thank again you. it's been really good to uh, have this discussion enjoyable okay and like i mentioned we'll look into a part two in a few months so if anyone has lingering questions just write them down take care i'll stick around to speak with the audience if i can Thanks, Kurt. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a sickness like that, what I'm feeling. It's, it's something else. It's not It's not a virus. It's nothing like that. It's more... Yeah, I, I, uh, I, can't, I can't talk about it. Okay, so let's see. Wolfstein, thank you. Jacob asks, what work can individuals do to contribute to the study of this? I believe somewhere around 35 minutes into this, maybe 40 minutes into this. Column outlined some of that. So I'll go and look into that. And I will try to timestamp that. Oro 
Carol Decoy says, vertigo and anxiety, I can relate. Yeah, I would say that it's not vertigo, but anxiety. Wilhelm says, Linda Moulton deserves an apologize. So I know what you may mean, an apology. And I, I don't want to talk about this publicly because it doesn't, it's not, it's like praying in public. It's not something that should be done. But I did apologize to Linda. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for your your kind comments. A couple people were mentioned. Bernardo Castrop was mentioned. Donald Hoffman was mentioned. Just so you know, there's an interview with Bernardo Castrop. I'm going to link that. It's going to be in the description. Same with Donald Hoffman on this channel. I think they're some of the best with them. And that's not because of myself. It's because I happen to catch them at great days on, at their, on their best behavior. And... Donald Hoffman is also coming on live on Sunday with Yosha Bach to talk about consciousness after Salvatore Pais and Gary Nolan, which will occur in a few weeks or so. I'm thinking of taking a lengthy break from this UFO content. The, I tend to take matters on this channel extremely seriously, whether they're about consciousness theories or physics or what have you, and it's extremely destabilizing to me. I, perhaps I shouldn't be taking them as seriously as I do, but I, but I but I I treat them, well, I take them seriously. And there's this quote by Rene Descartes, which says, which says something like, I heard, it says something like, I've fallen unexpectedly into a deep whirlpool, and I can't stand at the bottom nor swim to the top. So that's much like how I feel. And I want to also make sure that what I'm doing on this UFO topic is fresh and salutary. And while the comment section is filled with plaudits, I want to make sure that the adulation or the approbation is directed toward the toe approach or the questions asked. I want to make sure that that I'm. Well, I don't. I don't see it. I, and I, I. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's just that I don't see it. So I need to be able to see it. And I also want to make sure that I'm. There's so much there. there I want to make sure that this is. It's obvious that these videos are quite popular on the toe channel. They're the most popular. And I. I fear. I want to make sure that what I'm doing, I'm not doing, I'm not pursuing because it's favored. And it's so, like, I don't feel like I am. I feel like I'm genuine about it and, and, and I'm earnest, but I know how easy it is to delude oneself into pursuing what's popular. So I need to take some time and collect myself. I've seen people like even, even Jordan Peterson go down that route where he has great work in psychology and religion. And now almost all of his content is about and being anti-woke and so on. And I, I don't... I, I feel like he became embittered from that and followed some of the crowd. I need to make sure that I'm not doing that. I need to make sure that what I'm doing is not selfish and not filled with perfidy. Some mendacity, mendacity, lies and, and deceit. Not that it is, not that it is, but I'm saying that I need to introspect some more. But I also do too much introspection. I'm a bit extreme on that. There is a an upside to it though that it would give some of the uf the, like, let's think of the toe project as being split into two audience the ufo audience and then those who are more interested in the stem fields while it may be true that those who are in the stem fields like the theoretical math and physics should be more interested in the phenomenon and that learning a little bit about it can aid their understanding of stem while that's true, I think the flip side is also true, where understanding even a modicum of the foundations of mathematics and physics 
may aid one's understanding of the phenomenon. So perhaps it will give some of the people who are on the more UFO-oriented end of the TOW audience or the TOW Project's audience a chance to go through some of the other podcasts on this channel. In fact, there's a starter playlist that I've put together sorted in terms of what's most entertaining slash informative slash easy to go through. I'll put a link to that in the description. Jasmine says, are you going to address how ridiculously, ridiculously ignorant and disrespectful your chat is always when these topics are being discussed? Well, I wouldn't say my chat. I, that's, that's such a, it's, it's so tricky. The, the chat that happens on the videos that are posted on this channel. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't have time to look through these when I'm speaking. And I do, with regard to Linda Moulton Howe, I do condemn the comments that speak ill of her, especially with derision. I don't think that one should be derogatory toward Linda or any guest. You can be derogatory toward me. The Toe Project is about love. It's about clemency. So please, if you're being snide and you're despising, then that's not the compassionate understanding that the Toe Project is trying to emulate. So I'll say that. Though, also keep in mind, keep in mind, hey, for something this fractious, this controversial, this topic that's so alarming, the comments are actually extremely civil. So that I'm surprised about. While obviously there are, there are negative comments, I'm almost always surprised at how much positive comments there are. There's so much that I want to say about that Linda Moulton Howe interview. There's so much that I regret and so much that I, I just, but I feel like what I would be doing would be justifying myself like a little child. And I don't want to do that. I just want to take my lumps. Though there's so much that is false that I've read, for example. Linda was under the impression that I didn't read or go through the material that she sent, which is false. I, I watched all of what she sent as for reading. Well, she has plenty of work and there were tomes, so I wasn't able to read all of it, though I skimmed it. And I feel like that contributed to her, a negative impression of her toward me. I feel like my questions were ill-timed. I feel like it's false to say that I was harder on her than I was on other guests. And someone keeps saying, yeah, but you're average guest. What do you mean average? In statistics, you don't look at the average. You look at variance. Like, you have to look. There's something. There are higher order corrective terms. Variance is one of them. Because if it is, unless a distribution is simple, then average means nothing. And I would say it was in the variance of the channel, the way that I spoke with her. It doesn't mean that I spoke optimally, but I, would, I wouldn't say it was drastically different. And I do regret it. I do regret how it happened. Some people say, yeah, you didn't push back enough or you pushed back too much. My role on this toe channel is not to be a skeptic or to push back. That's not how I see it. I, I don't think in terms of that. I don't even think in terms of, well, how many, I'm, I have to have one hard question per every five questions. I just wanted to know if she was aware of the criticisms of her work, which is why I kept bringing it up. I didn't hear the answers from her. So I would repeat questions. And thus we spent more time on the criticisms, quote unquote criticisms, because I had to keep repeating the questions because she would give an answer that was five to 10 minutes long and I couldn't hear the response to my inquiry in there. Now there's someone like Lou Alessandro who's infamous for not answering the question, so why is it any different with him? Well, the difference with Lou is that Lou... Lou is self-aware that he's not answering the questions directly, and we'll even bring it up. Like He'll either say, I can't answer it because of reasons X, Y, and Z, or he'll 
parenthetically give an answer. So I'll give an answer that's parenthetically related or metaphorically related or thematically related. And also there were shorter answers. Whereas with Linda, I would wait, I'm listening, I'm listening. I'm like, Linda, I didn't quite hear the answer to that. And also as for speaking with her for two and a half hours, the interview was essentially of, unlim of unspecified time. And she had just come from proudly stating that she has more energy than she's ever had and that she works 18-hour days and that she speaks at conferences for hours on end. So I didn't think it was uncouth to ask her, hey, can you answer a couple more questions? I know we've been going for two and a half hours. In fact, I was taking her at her word when she said that she had more energy than she's ever had. Either way, I just have to move forward from that. Okay, well, everyone, thank you. Take care, everyone. I appreciate you all being here. The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.